Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Hello everyone, welcome back to Radio KBPV. This is Ranger Gord once again. I'm just popping in here very quickly because I have a much more important presentation that will follow. We opened the Rocky Mountain Echo last night at Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village and uh, we did it with a bang. Of course, as you've been uh, notice, if you've been following, we had a very special guest, Mr. David Halton who flew all the way out to uh, Alberta from uh, Eastern Canada and brought many of his relatives from the Calgary area uh, down to help us celebrate. So that was uh, quite welcome. If you uh, haven't been following, Mr. Halton has long deep roots in Pincher Creek, though not born here himself. His family uh, has been in the area since at least about 1902. And his connection to the Echo comes stems back to uh, great-grandfather Seth Thornley, who ran the press at the Pincher Creek Echo. His uh, grandmother, uh, Mary Thornley Halton, who was a writer there. And uh, his father, Matthew Halton, was also a writer there as a teenager, and then went on to a very distinguished career in journalism around the world, during the days leading up to World War II and during as well, where it can fairly be assessed that he was the uh, premier reporter overseas for the CBC and for BBC, and very much of a contemporary of people like Edward R. Murrow and folks like that, so rubbed a lot of shoulders. And um, Mr. David Halton, of course, himself has a very long and distinguished career that could rival his father's, uh, working with uh, primarily with the CBC, but also starting at the Calgary Herald and the Toronto Star in print, before moving into television journalism, working around the world um, through the days of the Vietnam War and in the Soviet Union, and several years as uh, chief political correspondent in Ottawa with the CBC and as a bureau chief in Washington, D.C. as well. So Mr. Halton's speech was uh, resoundingly uh, heard by a crowd of around uh, 50 people. And of course, uh, we uh, started out with uh, the opening of our brand new Rocky Mountain Echo exhibit was was the reason for the evening. And uh, we uh, started that off with Mr. Halton, in lieu of cutting the ribbon, walked straight through a uh, wall of newspapers through the doorway and into the new building and exhibit. So that was a 
a very raucous and wonderful way to start the evening. And the only thing I'm going to say is um, the limits of my recorder. Um, they, it did what it did, and I think it did a massive uh, thing. The only thing is I didn't have the, uh, the presence of mind to think about the question and answer session after, which was also very lively. I had shut off the recorder, um, believing that it, it would have been difficult because I wouldn't have been able to pick up the sound from the people asking the questions. And would haves and should haves, I really kind of wish I'd gone back and uh, <laughs> and uh, kept the recorder going at that point in time. But to live and learn, I'm new to the podcasting business. So at any rate, though, Mr. Halton, I think you will find gave a wonderful talk. And um, it is what it is. It might sound a little bit cavernous at times because uh, um, Mr. Halton, as he was going through his notes, tended to, uh, to drop off the microphone for a little bit. But I still think the recorder tended to uh, pick up his voice from across the room, which says more for the technology than it does for my own podcasting skills. So without further ado, uh, we'll start with Farley Wuth who will introduce Mr. David Halton. Ready? Carry on. Okay, so I'd like to introduce David Halton to our uh, audience. He is a well-known uh, CBC uh, television broadcaster for, uh, for several years. He comes from a very historical family within the Pinch Creek community. He's going to tell us some of those uh, histories. David Halton has had a very successful career with uh, journalism. He... Uh, uh, told me last night that he actually, uh, when they're having supper, started uh, one of his first jobs was working with the Calgary Herald, and that was his summer job. And um, he earned fifty-nine dollars a week, was it? Yeah. Yeah. See, that's the mistake. Don't tell me those things because I'll remember and they get recorded in the history book. And so this is one of his summer jobs that um, uh, he did. The next summer, the Calgary Herald job went to Joe Clark. So David Halton uh, got Joe Clark's career started in uh, uh, many ways and all that. So, <laughs> David Halton uh, worked for CBC Television as a broadcaster covering the news. And like Gord says, most of us grew up watching David Halton uh, uh, covered the news from many foreign points and national points. He was the CBC's uh, political correspondent uh, here in Ottawa for during the 1970s and 1980s. He was also uh, down in Washington, D.C. as the political correspondent down there. He worked in London, England. Uh, he worked in France. He worked in the Soviet Union. And uh, had a very, he brought the news in a very crisp, and lively dialogue and did a wonderful job with it. And it's nice to see him come back to his family's hometown to talk to us about some of those journalism things and the connections to the Echo and his own recollections. So David, if you'd like to come up, please. Oh, 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Brian, for that introduction. And welcome to everyone. Uh, to delight to see so many of the Alton family here. And uh, delight to see uh, uh, a lot of old timers who knew my dad and, uh, uh, and the, the Alton family when they were here. And uh, Betty Jean uh, Scott is one of them, uh, but there are many others. Uh, finally, a special uh, thanks to you for and your staff uh, and everyone else who's helped to uh, to organize this event, and also for doing such a marvelous job over the years in remembering and celebrating uh, Pincher Creek uh, through the uh, the Pioneer Village here. It's been a, a great achievement and. Uh, when I was writing my, my biography of my father, Matthew Halton, I delved into Farley's uh, archives here, which were uh, rich with material for the book that, uh, in fact, I used. It's always great to be back in Pincher Creek uh, for an all-too-rare visit. Um, I've never lived here, as you know, for any length of time, but in a curious way, feel that when I come back here, it's a kind of homecoming. That's because uh, my dad loved this place. He romanticized it. He, he talked obsessively about it at times through his life. Uh, I've run into later life to correspondents and politicians who would complain that Matt was such a, a booster of Pincher Creek that they, they dubbed him the boy from Pincher Creek and at times told him to keep quiet about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Growing up in uh, London, England, just after the Second World War, it was a time of austerity and, uh, and rationing there, and I well remember that uh, my, my sister and I would sit around the, uh, the log fire in our, in our house, and my dad would regale us with uh, stories about how wonderful Pincher Creek uh, is. Uh, he'd tell us about the lovely foothills, he'd tell us about the matchless view of the Rockies from Pincher. Uh, he'd tell us about the fantastic fishing. And my sister and I felt we knew almost every nook and cranny of the place sitting there in London. Uh, we knew where the swimming hole in the canyon was. Uh, we knew that the best fishing was in Carpenter's Creek. And in our childhood binds, Pincher Creek took on the aura of a kind of paradise. And uh, when we actually got here for a first visit after the Second World War, it was something of an anticlimax. <laughs> we, um, we arrived in, uh, in Lethbridge and drove in from there and uh, arrived at the little Halton house uh, on Charlotte Street. And uh, a wicked Chinook was blowing up that day and there was a dust storm. And you couldn't see the end of the street, let alone the, the, uh, the foothills of the Rockies. And um, we got out of the car, and I well remember my dad said, uh, he sort of exalted, said uh, very cheerfully, uh, kids, we've arrived. And uh, my sister got out of the car and looked around, and she said, um, but dad, when do we get to Pincher? <laughs> uh, however, the next day, the... Um, the clouds had disappeared and the, uh, the dust storm had dissipated and we weren't disappointed in the great views of the foothills and the, uh, the mountains. You may wonder why someone who hasn't lived here is going to be talking a little bit about the Pincher Creek Echo today. 
Uh, and the answer is simple. There have been some amazing connections over three generations with the Haltons uh, to that paper. First, there was my grandmother, as you mentioned, uh, Mary Alice, who uh, uh, emigrated to, uh, with her family here in uh, 1902. And not too many years after that, began writing for the Echo. Then, of course, there was my dad, who became a legendary uh, uh, graduate of the, uh, of the Echo. Uh, there were others. Uh, his brother, uh, Seth Halton, uh, who went on to become the publisher and editor of the Victoria Colonist, uh, he did some work for the, uh, for the Echo as well. Uh, then um, Jean Moser is here. She's the daughter of Annie Holton, the one uh, sister my, in, the, in the family. And um, her, uh, her brother, Ted Moser, uh, became the district correspondent for the Echo uh, from the Crozenes past, uh, before going on to becoming uh, the, the very distinguished uh, uh, managing editor of the Toronto Globe and Mail. Now, I, finally, I sometimes wonder uh, if I would have gone into journalism if I hadn't seen my father leading such a scintillating life, and uh, uh, all because of a career that began at the Echo. Uh, my sister was the same. She became a reporter, and I know too many others to, to list. Uh, someone remarked that uh, journalism uh, ran in the Halton veins. Well, the journalistic dynasty began, as I said, with uh, Granny Holton. She emigrates with her family from England in 1902, and uh, she begins reporting, as I said, not long after. And as some of you know, the, um, sh she began her career um, at, the, at the Echo reporting on some of the community organizations like the IOD, the Imperial Order of the Daughters of the Empire. It's probably long since gone. Uh, the Rebecca's, uh, the Masonic Lodge, and so on, graduates to writing about droughts and fires, and eventually uh, she writes, uh, she's given her own column on civic affairs. Um, Brian mentioned that the, uh, the Echo was founded in 1900, and initially known as the Rocky Mountain Echo. Its founder was Elias Saunders, who felt that a weekly newspaper was vital for the community in terms of defending the town's interest as well as promoting a sense of, of solidarity uh, in, the, in the community as a whole. And in that endeavor, the paper succeeded beyond expectation. I think you'd all agree. It played a vital role in an astonishing expansion of Pincher Creek in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and it, it, it helped the community to, to flourish to a degree that no one had expected. And it didn't just serve the town here. It pioneered a system in which there were uh, district correspondents uh, all around neighboring communities in Cowley and Twin Boot and places like that, uh, Fishburne, uh, all reporting on significant developments in their communities as well. The Echo was a rich source of information for me, as I, was, uh, as I mentioned, in terms of um, writing my book. Uh, I learned that, uh, as you again mentioned, Brian, that by 1911, the population here had doubled to 1,200 people. There were three churches, uh, several banks, uh, and four hotels. 
There was also a self-described opera house where no operas were ever performed, but where <laughs> visiting um, music groups and uh, theatrical productions were staged. The Echo reported on all these developments and a range of civic affairs. It congratulates itself in one editorial that I read as being, quote, fearless and outspoken in its utterance, a fine declaration for any newspaper then and today. To some degree, it also saw itself as the moral guardian of Pincher Creek. When a small brothel opened on Kettle Street, which was then known as Goose Alley because of the <laughs> squawking geese that inhabited it, the, um, the Echo decided to rail against what it called the House of Ill Fame, which it said was threatening the town with, quote, moral gangrene. <laughs> the paper wasn't always politically correct by today's standards. Uh, it criticized the early suffragette movement, saying, quote, we must avoid the entrance of women into the rough and tumble of life. Uh, not something that would go over terribly well today. Uh, and its obituaries in the early 1900s seem, again, delightfully quaint by today's standards. Um, often they would begin with the words, the Grim Reaper has once more visited a Pitcher Creek home. Uh, other obituaries began with, Mr. So-and-so last week crossed the Great Divide. Um, even the ads were revealing at the time and were very useful to me when I again was researching. One of the ads put out by the Hotel Arlington boasted that Pincher Creek, uh, their hotel, had the only flush toilet in southern Alberta. <laughs> Remember, there was no electricity or, or running water. Fairly long into the 20th century, and you can correct me on the dates on that. Now, I'm going to puzzle you by saying that the absence of flush toilets uh, makes for a convenient segue to the early history of the Halton family. And I'll keep you guessing about that for a few moments. As I mentioned earlier, Granny Halton, her husband, and other members of their family emigrated to Canada at the turn of the centuries, actually in, in 1902. They were rather poor, working-class uh, people from Lancashire, lured to Canada by the promise then of, of free land. And again, when I was researching, I found uh, some of the ads that the Dominion government and the CPR put out in, in England in magazines and newspapers and colored posters in, in bus stations and uh, in places like Lancashire. One of the posters I saw uh, pictured in color uh, a lavish homestead sitting uh, amid uh, golden wheat fields with the Rockies and snow-covered Rockies in the background. And it said... Uh, come to the new El Dorado. Well, initially at least there was no El Dorado for the Haltons. They were awarded a quarter section, uh, 19 kilometers uh, southwest of, of Pincher, uh, under the shadow of the Victoria Peak. As, as you all know, it was stunningly beautiful country, but for the Haltons, who had no uh, experience of homesteading or, or ranching, it proved a difficult, almost impossible task. So they end up um, 
they revisited, I think, in the first winter here by uh, a couple of bears who broke into the, uh, their, their log cabin, uh, the kind of visitor that they wouldn't normally expect to get in, in Lancashire. Uh, <laughs> um, so they move into Bitcher Creek. They can't, they can't face the winters uh, out on the, uh, the homestead. My granddad, Henry Holton, uh, was desperately looking for work uh, at that point, and he goes to the, um, he goes to the, uh, the mayor's office, and I think, Betty Jean, that your great-great-uncle was the first mayor of Pinchy Creek, uh, a, a Scot. And uh, my, um, my grandfather, uh, Henry Holton, uh, goes into the municipal office to ask if there's any work available, and uh, the mayor looks at his list and says, well, unfortunately, the only job available now is the honey wagon man. <laughs> and uh, you all, all laugh knowingly. Uh, when I tell that story to people in Eastern Canada in the cities, I have to explain to them that the honey wagon man is the guy who goes around a, a horse-driven rig to clean out the outdoor privies. Well, uh, my dad would occasionally accompany his father on the rig and unfortunately was teased by his classmates and labeled Shiphouse Holton's son. <laughs> um, Shiphouse Holton was the vulgar, if not entirely inappropriate nickname that was given to his dad. So none of his classmates at that point would have imagined that uh, Matthew would have gone on to become a legendary journalist who uh, was an international figure getting interviews with presidents, prime ministers, and royalty. And now we come to how that career was launched, and none of you will be surprised to know that it was because of the Pritchard Creek Echo. As I mentioned, Matt's mum covered a range of uh, uh, social activities in town, and she occasionally sent her son Matt uh, around to uh, events that she couldn't cover, to take notes for her, which uh, she would write up, uh, give them to Matt, and he would run them up to the Echo office, which was, I think, about two blocks uh, east of their little house on Charlotte Street. And Matt recounted later how he would go into the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Echo office, and he'd watch fascinated as the uh, typesetter uh, laboriously uh, uh, printed out the stories and... Uh, you saw in the, the replica there, that wonderful replica, you saw the, uh, uh, the, the printing machine, which made it, apparently was extraordinarily noisy and clanking. Uh, I'm not sure how modern it was. Someone said it was a Victorian machine, but I mean, he watched all this with fascination and took it all in. One day at the age of 12, Matt goes up to the, uh, uh, to the Echo office, and I imagine rather sheepishly, asks the editor if there's any reporting that he could do. And the then editor was a woman uh, whose uh, first married name was uh, Derrett, uh, Anna Derrett, and later uh, marries again and becomes Anna Edwards. And um, she sort of looks at him and smiles and doesn't want to brush him off. And she says, well, she looks at her list of coming up uh, engagements. She says, well, Matt, maybe you can go down to the creek there having the annual reopening of a campground beside the creek. The next day, the boy shows up with his handwritten account of the opening. Anna Edwards, and she recounts this uh, many times later, 
reads it and says she was taken aback by the quality of the writing. Among other descriptions that Matt wrote, he said that the ceremony took place, quote, beside the restful brook along the shimmering aspens. <laughs> Edwards said, she told the boy, Matthew, you found your vocation, keep on with your writing. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, Matt does some more reporting for the Echo, uh, and at 16 becomes the district correspondent as well for the uh, Lethbridge Herald. Uh, he says he would do anything to get into print, including on one occasion writing a report that he himself gave about a speech that he delivered to a youth club. <laughs> uh, after the University of Alberta, he becomes a celebrated foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star. He's based in Europe. Uh, he's in Berlin when Hitler takes power. He becomes one of the first correspondents to Chronicle and denounce uh, the evils of Nazism. He covers all the major events of the 1930s, the Spanish Civil War, the breakdown of the League of Nations, uh, the sellout of Czechoslovakia at the Munich Agreement. And he then becomes a household name, something of a legend in Canada when he joins the CBC and begins broadcasting about our frontline troops uh, in in, in Italy first, uh, then in France, Belgium, Holland, and Germany uh, from all the front lines of the uh, Second World War. Before leaving the star, as I said, he joins the CBC, and his articles at this point are already being published by British newspaper, and broadcasts are sometimes picked up by uh, NBC and CBS. When I was researching the book, um, I was told by the Library of Congress in the U.S., that one of his broadcasts, uh, a scoop on the contents of the famous Munich Agreement sellout, uh, they have a recording of that in the Library of Commerce uh, and it's considered a, a historic record at the time. By now, Mapp has an international reputation. He gets interviews with Roosevelt, with Chamberlain, with Charles de Gaulle, with Herman Goering, early in the 30s, and with Mahatma Gandhi. But perhaps his greatest scoop was getting an interview with King George VI, and I'll ask uh, Farley to give out um, some pictures of that occasion. It's on the, the grounds of, of Windsor Castle. So uh, pass these around, people can have a look at them and everything else. Yeah, pass them around. And it was on the eve of the royal visit to Canada in 1939, uh, when the royals grant a photo opportunity to the Toronto Star, which was then the biggest uh, newspaper in the empire, and the royal family wanted to pr promote their upcoming visit to Canada. Now, uh, Matt was allowed to come along to supervise his two photographers, and in the course of the session, he has a, a really interesting conversation with the royals, uh, including advising them um, how much they would enjoy the, the Rockies. Um, Surprisingly, in the record of that conversation, he didn't mention that he uh, pitched a creek, which was <laughs> uh, quite a surprise. Now, my dad hadn't expected to be able to write about this conversation because the strict protocol at the time, as it is today, is that the royal family never gives interview, especially the monarch, never gives interviews to the, to the press. That was completely uh, excluded at that time. But shortly after the session, he gets a call from the assistant press secretary at Buckingham Palace, who tells him that um, 
the royals, the royal family really in, uh, enjoyed the session with the star and they gave Matt uh, permission to write about the conversation. Now this was unprecedented at the time and it uh, gives Matt perhaps the biggest scoop of his career. Now, I discovered that photo that you're looking at. I don't know how many of you have seen it yet. Uh, it shows, uh, as I say, Matt and King George VI with uh, the current queen, uh, Princess Elizabeth at the time, standing just behind uh, the king and uh, Queen Elizabeth, um, uh, the king's consort, and Princess Margaret all standing there uh, chatting with Matt. And when I discovered this photo, I must admit that one of my first immediate reaction was, gee, Shithouse Halton's son had come a long way. <laughs> uh, and what I, what I didn't add, and perhaps should have add, added, was thanks to the Pincher Creek Echoes. <laughs> well, I didn't want to go uh, too long, but I want to allow some time for you to uh, make some commentaries and reminiscences and ask any questions you might want. Uh, but I thought I'd conclude by making some thoughts about the state of the news media in the digital age. Uh, it's not a happy news story. It's a kind of sad news story because especially in terms of the print media, as a government commission report uh, put it uh, a couple of uh, months ago, uh, the state of journalism in Canada, of print media is in a state of crisis. First, a paradox the internet, it seems to me, has been both an enormous blessing for journalism and its consumers, and at the same time, an enormous curse for journalism and its consumers. And let me explain. It's been a blessing uh, for obvious reasons, because it's given us access, if we so choose, to the best reporting in the world. We can now tap instantly into the New York Times, Le Monde, The Guardian, The Globe and Mail, uh, National Post in Washington, in, in, or The Washington Post, uh, not to mention The Echo, which is online as well. And the internet has also spawned some good websites that have hired some excellent reporters. And it's been a blessing for journalists as a tool for research and fact-checking fact and for the speed with which they can transmit their copy all around the world. It's brought a wealth of information into our homes and businesses to a degree, I think, unimaginable uh, until a few decades ago. Why then can the internet also be a curse? Well, firstly, most people don't get their news from those quality sources I mentioned, many of which charge subscriber fees that people don't want to pay. Mostly, they get their news from social media, from blogs, and the Twitter universe, where information is often unfiltered, unchecked, and biased, where there are no editors to maintain standards of accuracy, no or gatekeepers to look over copy coming in from reporters. In short, where just about anyone can post just about anything. A recent survey of young Americans between the ages of 18 and 30 found that uh, almost two-thirds of those surveyed said they found their news by, quote, unquote, bumping into news on the social media, where, of course, they probably got as much disinformation as 
real news and objective analysis. A lot of people are using the word fake news these days. There is indeed a lot of fake news uh, being circulated uh, based on bias or opinion or uh, conspiracy theories. And here I'm not talking about the kind of fake news that President Trump talks about, which usually means any news that is negative uh, about him and anything written by journalists that he calls, quote, unquote, enemies of the people. And to digress, one of the unfortunate consequences of that is that a lot of dictators and authoritarian leaders across the world are using that phrase, enemies of the people now, repressing their journalism. Uh, there have been scores of arrests of journalists in places like Indonesia and uh, Turkey and, and Saudi Arabia. Um, even some murders. One thinks of uh, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who was, uh, uh, was butchered by uh, Saudi authorities. Uh, it's not a very good time for independent journalists to function in many countries across the world. But that, as I say, is a bit of a digression. Some sociologists talk as well about the atomization of the uh, internet. And by that, they mean that instead of being a unifying force, the internet actually fragments society by providing such a huge multitude of sources and points of contact. The result is that society no longer has a unifying knowledge base derived from having the same relatively small number of traditional and reliable news media. In the old newspaper model, there was usually a clear distinction between fact-based news on the news pages and editorial and opinion uh, on the uh, op-ed pages. The distinction is largely blurred in today's social media where people tend to turn to sites that confirm their own social or political views, whether of the, the left or the right. And in my opinion, that's contributed to the kind of destructive polarization that we're seeing particularly in US politics today. Well, let me finish by mentioning perhaps the most serious consequence of the internet, which is the sucking up of advertising revenue uh, from newspapers. It's shut many of them down and shrunk the size of many others. In the last decade or so, more than 40 big city newspapers in Canada have been closed, and more than 200 local and community papers have gone under as well. It's particularly tough for, for local newspapers, uh, even for the Echo, which by all accounts is now struggling a bit for its future survival as well. In all, about 16,000 newspaper jobs have been lost uh, in Canada over the past uh, 15 years. Uh, that's about a third of all jobs in the Canadian newspaper industry. In an area which particularly interests me, uh, the number of foreign correspondents, there are two-thirds fewer Canadian foreign correspondents abroad than there were two decades ago. Why does all this matter? Well, in terms of foreign correspondents, we need them to reflect a Canadian perspective on the world and to reflect our own national interests that are obviously different from American or British ones. And we need enough provincial, uh, national, uh, local reporters to adequately cover uh, parliament, the legislatures, the courts, and city hall everywhere in the country. Democracy 
as someone once said, depends on healthy journalism. Well, I don't want to leave you feeling too gloomy, gloomy about the state of the news media here. There are some potentially encouraging developments. Uh, the federal government has made a big fund available uh, to help out newspapers, and some of that money is going to uh, local news, although I'm told by the ECHO reporters here that unfortunately uh, the ECHO may not qualify for that, so that's uh, certainly a shame. But the measures have generally been welcomed by uh, Post Media, for example, which owns the, uh, the Pitcher Creek uh, ECHO. Much fine journalism, thankfully, is still being done in Canada and elsewhere, um, despite all those adverse pressures that I mentioned. Uh, let's hope it continues. Um, let's hope that the industry thrives as much as it has at times in the past, and that perhaps the uh, Echo lives to launch some more great careers by journalists. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaibrown.ca. Kootenai is spelled K O O. T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum, or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.